0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to the Future Proof podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCrae. Coming up on this episode We'll be taking a look at what goes into transplantation and discovering some weird-ass stuff that happens. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. You can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We get to all of those comments usually uh, at the end of the podcast. Uh, first, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Lara Dungan. Ruth, our first story has to do with soil.
2: Yes, so for the first time we have grown food in soil from space. And this is very old soil. It's actually soil that was brought back from the moon, from the Apollo missions between 1969 and 1972. And a a very small amount of soil was brought back. Uh, Just about 300 kilograms was brought back and it's been kept very uh, safely in NASA. But they gave just 15 grams of this soil to researchers in the University of Florida and and using, you know, tiny little plastic uh, sort of thimble size um, pots, they use this to grow plants, a little crest-like plant that scientists love called Arabidopsis because it's easy to grow. And and to their amazement, and I was amazed as well, after a couple of days, the seeds in the moon soil sprouted and grew uh, really just as well as the little control experiment.
1: So we have been growing plants in space for decades, right? I mean, bringing Earth soil to space, it's not a problem. But um, this is the first time we've been able to grow something in soil that didn't come from the Earth. Are are we in any way surprised by the fact that the plant can grow?
2: I mean, when I first read it, I was incredibly, because soil is incredibly complex. And while, you know, mostly soil is made up from weathered rocks, there's a huge amount of material in it that is organic. So from dead decayed plants, and it's full of microbes and fungi and insects and worms. I mean, one tablespoon of earth soil has more organisms in it than there are people on earth. There's about 50 billion microbes in one tablespoon of, so- of soil. So it's a living substance. Now, the research just did add a kind of nutrient solution to the moon soil. But the the texture of the moon is incredibly rough. There's a huge amount of glass fragments in it from meteorites and things that have hit the earth. So I think that the, that we were surprised you know even with that nutrient solution, that the plant's roots could grow in what is a very rough and coarse and harsh environment for them. Now now even though they did grow, they didn't thrive. so I think that's important to say they sprouted very well, and after a couple of days, they looked fine. But about a week later they were showing signs of stress which again isn't surprising there was probably it's it's the way we would see plants reacting to very salty soil or places that there's high levels of metal or pollution so it wasn't a perfect growth environment but even the fact that they grew was a
1: surprise Sorry, uh, I have forgotten what soil was for the most part. Which a which uh, soil on Earth is mostly, as you say, decayed plants. So and now I am surprised. Now that I remind people <laughs> what actually is in soil, I actually am surprised. Um, so, like, if we were to take you know uh, crushed up rocks here, which is essentially what we're talking about, and and try to grow something in it, that would not be very easy, right?
2: Correct. And in fact, that's one of the things that's so interesting about this research. Yes, it's incredible for those that are interested in space exploration and colonizing space, because this could provide a way to grow food, you know, on the moon. But on the other side, we know that our own soils here on Earth are being depleted. We know that like nearly 20% of our soils are under huge pressure and they are losing nutrients. So I suppose. This also could feed into research that helps us to think about how we can grow food in parts of the earth where our soil quality is getting worse and worse.
1: Laura, our second story has to do with extinction.
0: So let's paint a little picture first. So the first animals on Earth started to appear over 630 million years ago. So there were single-celled organisms before that, and then they started to become multicellular organisms, but metazones, so animals with differentiated cells, they started to appear over 600 million years ago, and they started all at the bottom of the sea, and they moved up higher and higher, and they started to need oxygen. And then about 540 million years ago, There was a huge mass extinction. These are very different animals to what we're used to today. They didn't even have skeletons. They were all soft-bodied. And we can see some of them in the fossil record, presumably a huge amount, are not recorded. And this was called the Ediacaran period. And this extinction 541 million years ago is kind of a mystery. There's no evidence of the meteorites that we know have caused the, well, we are pretty sure caused the dinosaur extinction. There's no evidence of the volcanoes that may have caused other extinctions. And people are confused. So this new research has shown that they think that it is probably from competition, so internal factors. It has been believed up until now that the oxygen all left the ocean at one time, and that's why all of the creatures died. But they looked at three different time periods. One is about 570 million years ago. One was 15 million years later, and one was then another 10 million years later, And in the first one, 570 million years ago, which was the Avalon assemblage, they have great names, all of these. There were a lot of animals that lived completely separate from each other. They had their own little environments. They didn't really interact and there was very little competition. Then you cut to 15 million years later. These animals have all started to live together. They've started to not only live cooperatively, but they've started to compete with each other and then cut to another 10 million years later to the Nama assemblage, which was found in Namibia. And an awful lot of them are gone, dead put. So the new theory from these researchers is that it was actually intrinsic factors. So it was competition that caused these animals to either die or evolve. And it actually resulted in something huge, a mass extinction that was not external, but was actually internal.
1: How does that work? I mean, how do you, I mean, surely in an environment where there's competition, surely someone needs to win that competition and that winner presumably thrives. How can you compete yourself into extinction?
0: So the winner thrives, but everybody else doesn't. So if you are the one who is less well suited for the environment or the 10 species that are less well suited for the environment, it's either evolve or die. So a lot of them will have just simply died some of the species will have evolved to be become better suited to the environment, but then they may have killed the ones that were, willing, that were winning beforehand. But it's quite interesting. We haven't really seen this before in the fossil record. And the, the fact that it wasn't some big external factor is, is quite new, really.
1: Right. Our third story, Ruth, has to do with car crashes. And yet again, a bad news for women in the world of men.
2: Yes, this is some research that was inspired by an amazing book called Invisible Women, written by Caroline Criado-Perez. And it's a book that just looks at the whole world and how it's sort of designed for men as opposed to for women. And in that book, she talks about how women do in car crashes. And there was already data which showed that women were about 47% more likely to be seriously injured in a car crash, uh, 71% more likely to be moderately injured and 17%, sorry, More likely to die, even when you controlled for weight and height. And of course, in the book, she explains that. This is because women obviously have a different body shape, but even as, um, you know, the car industry refers to them as out of position drivers. And I I sort of had a flashback to I'm sure seeing women driving around with cushions, you know, under them in in the driver's seat, because even with adjusting the, the car seat, they couldn't get into a comfortable position to reach the pedals easily and see over the top of the steering wheel. So this book, anyway, inspired some clinicians in University Hospital Plymouth to go back and look at all of the data from patients that were admitted to trauma centres in the UK between 2012 and 2019. And they looked at about 70,000 records and they found indeed that women are almost twice as likely as men to become trapped in a motor vehicle after a crash. And they again also identified different patterns of injuries. So about 16% of women become trapped in serious car crashes versus only about 9% of
1: men. When you say they're a different body shape, I mean, I know that, but how does that contribute to these extraordinary figures?
2: Well, I think for, for a start, the, the crash test dummies that are most commonly used uh, are about 1.8 metres in height and weigh nearly 80 kilos. So that's much bigger than the average woman. But also they don't take into account the fact that women tend to have wider hips and pelvises. And of course, the positioning of your seatbelt is very critical in relation to your pelvis. So women were also more likely to suffer from pelvic injuries. And of course, if you've hurt hurt or broken your pelvis, you're much more li- much less likely to be mobile and be able to get out of the car. Uh, but another thing that, that actually I had heard from a paramedic who was who was training us in first aid was that a critical reason why people get trapped in cars is because their feet get trapped under the pedals. So in fact, the pedals bend around people's feet. And, and obviously women have smaller feet. They might be wearing lighter footwear and p- perhaps makes that that easier to happen. But, you know, the, the EU is bringing in new regulations now and they are going to um, insist that car manufacturers use dummies all different shapes and sizes so that they can actually really take account of women's pelvises and also pregnant women. I mean, pregnant women do do the worst in all of this because they are never taken into account in this kind of modelling. But the EU is going to say yes. Now, for these scientists, they call out the UK as a result of Brexit has decided not to do that. So...
1: Well, like, as funny as it sounds, this is exactly the sort of thing that um, the, the red tops were sort of campaigning for that Britain would have control over its own safety and environmental laws. Well, um, this is what happens, I suppose. Um, Dr. Lara Dungan and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland, thanks very much. Coming up, are peak hearts and other body parts the answer to the transplant waiting list? <laughs> Now, it's a strange quirk of the human psyche that the amazing can become pretty normal in a very short space of time. The smartphone in your hand is a great example. To your great-grandfather, it might as well have been magic. Transplant surgery is another advance that we've become used to. But when you think about what's involved, it's incredible that such a procedure has become almost routine. And when earlier this year, surgeons at the University of Maryland transplanted a pig heart into patient David Bennett, the boundaries of what was possible were broadened once again. So is there a limit to what we can transplant and what other advances are coming down the line? And should we be embracing xenotransplantation? Well, Reza Motalib-Zadeh is head of the Centre for Transplantation at University College London. He joins me now. You're very welcome to the programme, Reza. Uh, As as a transplant surgeon, do you work on a particular organ? Do you specialise in a particular organ or can you transplant anything for anyone?
3: Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you very much for inviting me onto, onto your show and your program. Um, so I'm a, I'm a renal transplant surgeon. And uh, as you said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an academic transplant surgeon. So I'm based at University College London, but also uh, my clinical work is, is at the Royal Free Hospital. And my focus is on kidney transplantation, although I've had training uh, when I was a registrar in
1: um, liver and pancreas transplantation. We um, we can transplant a bunch of things, can't we? What is the list at these days? And are there certain things that are very difficult to transplant?
3: Yeah, I mean, so so it's quite incredible actually the the range of organs in it. and clearly we're all appreciative of the donors who agree to donate um, and their families who who agree to to donate their organs without which you know our, our specialty could not thrive and and patients could not benefit from. So in terms of organs. They're both solid organ uh, transplants um, and soft tissue transplants. So in terms of the solid organs, the, the commonest ones are heart, lung, pancreas, kidneys. Um, some centers do in the UK, uh, two centers do small bowel transplantation. Uh, and then there are the tissues such as the corneal transplants. Uh, there are limb transplants. One center in the UK is, a, is a, has a specialist uh Program in limb transplantation. You've also heard in in countries um, such as France and the USA, there have been a series of face transplants. So, so quite a broad uh, range of of tissues, um, and of course the commonest, you know, well, blood transfusions. I mean, you, you have to remember that blood is obviously quite an important organ, mm. uh, and that is a, a tissue which is which is transplanted um, or donated rather um, on a daily basis.
1: I was um, lucky or or unlucky enough to witness a cochlear implant um, being installed in in surgery. And it was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen, because when we think about surgery, we often think of those delicate um, tools that are used um, lying down at the table. But actually, surgery can be quite a brutal thing when it comes down to it. Can Can you take me through what you have to do to get to someone's kidney to transplant it?
3: It, yeah, so that's quite a quite a complex process, um, and um, for kidney transplantation, there are, and it really boils down to where the kidneys are coming from, so it can either come from, the donor kidney can come from a live donor, mm. a, a living patient, or from a deceased donor, and a live donor is a, is a planned operation, um, and uh, a deceased donor transplant can take place any time of the day or night. Um, when an organ uh, becomes uh, available. And this is all under the auspices in in the UK, under the NHS Blood and Transplant, which uh, matches donor organs to to recipient patients. Mm. So, for instance, at Royal Free, we have patients on the waiting list uh, for either a kidney or liver transplant, um, and um, NHS Blood and Transplant will allocate deceased donor organs as they become available to transplant uh, into patients at our centre. For kidney transplantation, there are 23 transplant centers in the UK. Uh, and liver, there are uh, there are seven. So um, it, it's quite a um, <clears throat> logistically very challenging process because you have to coordinate teams to go to the donor hospital to um, what we call retrieve the organs from a deceased donor. And that has to be done very carefully and, and timely so the organs are preserved in the best possible condition. Uh, and at the same time, on the recipient side, uh, we will call in a recipient again, it could be at any time of the day or night they get that call to come into hospital to start the process uh, uh, and w- wait effectively for that donor organ to arrive uh, and for us to do the um, to do the uh,
1: implant surgery. So So what does the surgery entail then?
3: Yeah, so the, uh, so so kidney transplant um, typical length is about three uh, in terms of the operating time is about three hours. Uh, when the when the donor kidney um, arrives at the at the recipient center, uh, we take it out of its box. So it's a, it's packed in a in a in a box which has ice in it uh, and the kidney's in preservation fluid, and it's designed to keep the kidney cold um, at four degrees centigrade. We inspect the kidney, make sure that it's it's transplantable. Um, it's we take the fat off the kidney to make sure that it cools down properly and there's no no potential lesions on the kidney that might uh, preclude uh, transplantation and prepare the blood vessels um, in a way that makes the implant easier. And then that's all occurring whilst the patient the recipient is being put to sleep. And then uh, we start the operation and there are three main joins for a kidney transplant. So a kidney has a a main artery, a main vein and a ureter, which is a tube that drains ureter, uh, that drains urine rather, from the kidney into the bladder, and we join those three tubes uh, accordingly. So um, the artery and vein are joined to an artery and vein in the groin and the ureter mm-hmm. to the bladder. Now, some kidneys are more complex. They will have more than one artery, um, potentially more than one ureter. What? Uh, and, yeah, so, so not every kidney <laughs> has a single artery and single vein. Really? Um, as is shown in, in, probably in, in textbooks at school. Uh, it, you can have uh, multiple arteries. I've seen kidneys with five arteries. Um, wow. Yeah, and that, that makes the, the, the implant uh, challenging to, uh, <laughs> because you have to do potentially separate what we call anastomoses or joins into the artery in, of, the, of the recipient.
1: Do you, do you uh, sort of stick those tubes into one tube? Because presumably the, the, if that's the donor um, kidney mm. and the recipient kidney hasn't got those, those arteries, <laughs> it, then you've got nowhere to put them. So, so
3: I, should, sorry, I should clarify that the recipient's own kidneys, um, they're not touched. So um what? the recipient will end up with an, yeah, that's right the recipient will end up with an additional kidney uh, a third and, kidney yes a third kidney so we leave the kidney they leave their own kidney um, in place because um, their own kidneys might be producing a little bit of urine it might be contributing to a bit of renal function um, so it's not not necessary to, to remove it. The other thing is that it, it increases the length of the operation uh, unnecessarily And thirdly, where we put the kidney, the kidney, the, the, the transplanted kidney goes in the groin. So it actually sits <laughs> in a different anatomical place to where your own kidneys are, which are sort of high up on your back. I'm sorry, why,
1: why, why would you do that?
3: Well, for, for a number of reasons. Actually, implanting the kidney in the groin is, is technically um, uh, less challenging than putting a, a kidney back sort of in its original um, location. okay. Uh, and the second, it also, where we put it, it, it sort of sits, what we call in this extra peritoneal plane, it sits outside the abdomen. And that allows us to potentially take biopsies or small samples of the kidney if we think um, the kidney is rejecting. Uh, so where it sits uh, is advantageous for, for for a number of reasons.
1: That's genius. That, uh, uh, yeah, it's genius, I mean, the idea of, uh, well, it's, it's actually tricky to get the kidney. Let's just stick it down here instead. Uh, obviously, yeah, so, obviously, the wiring so, matches up then
3: yeah so, so so the wiring, as you say, doesn't so you've got a main artery in, uh, and vein in the groin that you can connect to the kidney, and that gives its blood supply and because it's down in the groin, it's close to the bladder, so the 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 ureter the the tube that drains the kidney can be kept as short as possible uh to drain into the bladder now some patients uh, when they're on their third or fourth kidney transplant we, we 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 have to find novel places so some can go inside the abdomen um just below where their own kidneys are. Uh, And some some patients, some professional athletes who've had a kidney transplant because they don't want to injure, reduce the risk of injury to their kidney, um, have have their kidney placed inside the abdomen uh, just below where their normal kidneys
1: lie. Sorry, um, uh, just another, I'm I'm finding this absolutely fascinating, Reza. Can you confirm that if you have a second or third kidney transplant, Mm. you're just adding more kidneys?
3: Yeah, so so there are two, there are there are two ways. Of, so if you've exhausted the space within your groin, so you, p- you put one kidney on one side, another kidney on the other side, and now you're you're, you're potentially facing your third kidney transplant. Uh, you you can put the kidney sort of what we call higher up in the abdomen, um, so not in the groin, um, just just below where your, your normal kidneys um, come off. It, it's again, it's a bit more challenging operation, which is why we don't do it first time we, we do it until we've sort of exhausted other easier options yeah um i can imagine and, uh, yeah so so those operations obviously take take a bit longer than three, than the standard uh, two and a half to three hours
1: so um it is a a kidney transplant more difficult than say for example an arm transplant i mean is there a lot more to connect with a with, with an arm when it comes to you know you've yeah. got your muscles you've got them um, yes. tissues and skin and all that is it a much more yeah. tricky procedure to do that
3: yeah so so uh, a limb transplant you're not just transplanting arteries and veins or joining arteries and veins to to give a blood supply to the to the new limb but also the nerves that have to be rejoined to make the arm or uh, limb functional and that's that's another level of of complexity the 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 other transplants i've mentioned things like heart uh, uh lung liver uh, those are organs that go um, that we call give the correct term orthotopic, so they go in the place where they normally reside. So we have to take the old uh, heart or or, or lung or, or liver out, and and those that that makes that operation those operations also um, uh, uh, more complex than than a kidney transplant.
1: I, I imagine yeah. in the case of a heart, you're talking about literally sawing the chest open, right? It's a that, yeah, yeah 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 that's right. That's yeah. unpleasant. Yeah. yeah yeah. So what about the 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 way we keep these organs preserved because you talked about a bag yeah. of ice have we not developed anything a bit better than a bag of ice to, yeah. to keep to keep these organs alive i mean with a heart yeah. isn't it ideal that that heart keeps on pumping and it keeps do we have no machines yeah. we can stick hearts onto to, to keep them going
3: yeah that's that, that's a great question so so we do The the, the organ perfusion technology has has been has there been remarkable advances over the last uh, decade and as you say, um, the, the sort of standard way of preserving organs was, to, was, was putting them in, in preservation fluid. It's a special type of fluid that prevents the cells from of the organ bursting or swelling. And also but keeping the organ on, on ice at four degrees centigrade. And now we have what we call ex vivo perfusion machines. So you can put an organ on a rig and pump perfusion fluid um, into the organ. So you get better preservation. So this is using cold... Perfusion fluid, but also you can actually reanimate the organ as well using um, blood at, at, at what we call normal, normal thermic or normal temperature. And we do this for hearts, we, we do this for, for livers, uh, and there's a trial in the UK going on to, to do this for, for kidneys. And the, preserving organs in, in this way has, has a number of advantages. Uh, firstly, you can reanimate the organ and see how it functions, especially in, in, in the case of a heart. To see how how well it pumps before it's implanted into the uh, recipient, mm. because it's got blood flowing through it, it's it's got oxygenated blood going through the organ. It's at at, at normal temperature. You can give therapies um, to the organ before it's implanted, so you can potentially recondition uh, the organ in such a way that uh, it functions better or it functions more quickly before um, once it's implanted, and and, and that. That that's area of research that's uh, 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 ongoing with with therapies you, you can give to organs outside of the body but prior to being um, implanted.
1: That that um, pig transplant with uh, the patient da- David Bennett. I was reading something by one of the doctors and it, uh, it it appeared to say that the solution that was run through the pig heart was cocaine and saline and a, a, a few other things. Did I read that right? Why, why <laughs> on earth would you be? Passing cocaine through a heart Surely that's a really bad idea. Um, I, that's that's news to me. <laughs> I, I didn't know that actually. Oh
3: right, uh, yeah, yeah. So 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 yeah, that cocaine is, can affect uh, blood vessels um, in terms of how well they're dilated or constricted. Um, I, I I I didn't read that. What was remarkable about that pig xenotransplant was, f- firstly, the, the the sort of getting over the um, immune a barrier to, to xenotransplantation because as humans we have naturally formed antibodies against pig tissue so we if i was given a, a pig transplant uh, i would attack the organ you know my immune system would attack the organ uh, and it would the organ would necrose and die within minutes if not hours and what the the team had done a genetically engineered a pig to um not express certain antigens but also, they've added extra genes to the pig to, to to reduce to reduce that risk of of rejection and reduce the risk of transmission of of certain viruses. And really, a, a landmark in terms of uh, getting over some of the immune barriers was 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 incredibly impressive.
1: There's obviously some controversy around using animal hearts in this way because yeah. if it's if it's not the future of transplant. It's a huge amount of money being spent researching something that hmm. we may or may not use. Um, having you know to trial these things, you've got to put these pig hearts in in patients um, who yep. will almost certainly die. Um, David Bennett did manage to last, I, I think it was around two months, wasn't it? And, and yes, then and then right, he passed. Yeah. Um, yes. uh, uh, what do you feel about a, a xenotransplantation as a research subject and, and and where it might go in the future?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think that the lots of Lots of issues around the, the ethical aspects. You'd have, you'd have heard also about the kidney transplants from pigs into um, uh, a man, and that was in someone who was who was brain dead, who uh, would not have benefited in any way directly from those kidney transplants. But the, the actual. Feasibility of doing that provided has provided a lot of useful information that we wouldn't have got from in, in any in any other way. Mm. It is, as you mentioned, incredibly expensive. I've heard figures of a million dollars plus to rear a single pig. Uh, this genetically enge- these types of genetically engineered pigs, uh, and clearly um, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to see how the durability of these uh, of these transplants now in in the Case of David Bennett, he was incredibly sick. He 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 wouldn't have survived much longer without a, without a transplant. But uh, it has to also focus the mind that you know there are other potential areas. There are other areas of research. There's there's organs which are not being utilised. Um, Don't potential donors not being identified, which um, are, I would say, more realistic in terms of the short short and medium term in terms of improving the the sort of reducing the mismatch between patients on the waiting list mm. and to those needing, um, uh, to the uh, o- number of organs which are available.
1: I remember reading about the the first mechanical heart transplant. I, mean, I suppose transplant is probably the wrong word because the, 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 the mechanical heart at the time was the size of a fridge. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, Each of the patients that um, endured the extreme discomfort in in many of those subsequent experiments, they were Mm. all, I suppose, putting their life on the line, knowing they were going to die anyway, to advance research. And, um, uh, you know, much like any donor, it's a significant sacrifice and and a very noble thing to do. While the, the, the pig transplantation eventually failed David Bennett, and the idea at the moment is still sort of very much uh, in its early stages. Do you think that this um could over time if 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 we open our ourselves to the the idea of it that that xenotransplantation could be a way of removing transplants that's transplant yeah, I mean,
3: so so, so I, I, I think you know that you've hit the nail on the head. i mean there the, are the big gaps and certainly in some countries worse than others in terms of patients on waiting lists and those needing a transplant. and for certain organs, um, so for a heart or liver, there's no sort of assist. Well, there's limited assist devices only for liver transplants. So, uh, whereas with patients um, who have a kidney kidney failure or end stage kidney disease, they they, they can, there is dialysis, albeit is not as good in terms of replacing kidney function as a transplant. There isn't this option um, for for patients who have severe liver disease, mm. um, and so uh, th- this is what's driven this type of research th- th- this work and this research and it's incredibly brave of the of the recipients who have agreed to do this and that that shouldn't get lost in, in any of any discussions but there are clearly ethical concerns um is it right to breed animals in such a way we don't we, we still don't know all the sort of uh, reasons behind his uh, that that patient's demise that, 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 that there was there was transmission of a of a strain of, of virus um that's unique to to pigs um again right. uh, some of that mechanisms underlying you know how we could potentially get over over that um transmission is it possible to again genetically engineer a pig without that virus what are better treatments that we could we have for that for that for porcine viruses a, a lot of this is in its infancy and not to mention you know uh, uh, how uh, the, the the sort of hemodynamic, the the blood pressure loading of a heart in a pig is very different to that in in a human, um, and how that how that human how that heart can cope uh, in a different environment,
1: we, we, we wait to be seen. At, at present, a kidney only lasts twelve to twenty years, and obviously that, that's a long time. But why do they fail, and what is the next step towards permanent transplantation that acts as the original kidney might?
3: Yeah, so there have been massive progress uh, in the last two decades in terms of how how long the transplant survives. So so the the, the, f- the figures were about 10 to 15% loss of, of trans- a kidney transplant um, in the first year is now down to less than 5%. And that's, that's because of better drug therapy to suppress the immune system. And the, one of the chief, um, sort of one of the main Achilles heels of a, of a, of a transplant is, is this rejection process, this smoldering rejection process that is not completely controlled by, by the drugs, the medication uh, we give. And, and those medications do have side effects because if you give too much immunosuppression, you, you, patients are at risk of getting infections and certain forms of cancer. So you have to achieve a certain balance. Uh, and some of the, the research that's been going on is to see, for, for instance, is seeing how we could use cellular therapies. So you'd have heard maybe CAR T-cells or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. These are special T-cells that are developed, um, uh, are engineered, um, that have been used to, to um, treat certain forms of cancer. Well, there are, uh, it, we want the flip side of that. So there are certain regulatory cells that act as brakes on the immune system. That you can potentially engineer um, and give that to patients at the time of a transplant, and it's potentially, you know, the 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 the, the holy grail is to get tolerance so that you, you tolerate the the the, uh, the organ and you don't reject it by by having this potentially regulatory cells given at the time of a transplant. Um, so so this is really exciting work that, that that's ongoing. And then, you know, desi- designing better drugs, um, understanding the why rejection occurs. Um, my, my team is looking at the role of the microbes in the gut that could be contributing to the immune response to um, a, an organ transplant and whether actually manipulating the the access between the gut and the immune system um, can can help um, improve the longevity of, of kidney transplants and reduce
1: the side effects of the, the immunosuppression therapy. Very cool. Um Finally, what about artificial organs? Um, We did a piece a long time ago on Future Proof about left ventricle-assisted devices, which uh, essentially are uh, like uh, a replacement for your left ventricle, um, temporary, but uh, they assist with the pumping of blood uh, around your heart. Um, Mm -hmm. in, in, In the story that we ran, the... The, the heart didn't, didn't have a pulse because it was a, a constant whir of a motor. Um, and so uh, they were able to power it from, from the outside. And I'm wondering, are there other types of um, electrical uh, devices or um, multi-material devices that may one day replace and perhaps even outperform our organs? Or is that just way too far, hmm. even for something as homogenous as the liver, for example?
3: No, it's it's not at all. Um, so 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 there are uh, there's work using stem cells to develop a certain um, cell populations. So the islet cells of the pancreas, and that's probably one of the first therapies we might see. Um, uh, that you engineer new cells um, uh, from stem cells to re- to to augment or replace organ function. It obviously becomes more complex the more. Um, the, the, the the type of organ that you have. so for a kidney, you have 26 different cell types um, and, and e- e- these solid organs obviously need a need an adequate blood supply. Uh, and so to, to re-engineer a whole kidney, even a liver, it, it, I think we're, 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 we're several so several years behind <laughs> that. What will what really is transforming, however, is, is cr- creating 3D what we call miniature organs. So you can create 3D miniature livers, hearts, um, kidneys. Uh, and actually having those 3D miniaturized organs is an amazing platform to to test new drugs, understand uh, disease processes that we, we can't really do with, you know, traditionally I've, I've done using, using maybe animal models, which again has their own um, uh, ethical issues, but also not really recapitulating what... Uh, a 3d organ actually looks like in a human and functions in a human um and 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 obviously several steps ahead of of culturing cells on a dish on a, on a 2d environment which which again doesn't represent the true physiology uh, of an organ i think this this this, this, this 3d organoid technology um uh, really will potentially will help in the discovery of, of new uh, drug compounds and and better understanding of disease and i think the, the logical extension of that is maybe, you know, we can re-engineer a whole organ from scratch, but but um,
1: uh, not for a while. Well, it is fascinating uh, and, of course, extremely important work that you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Reza matalab is head of the Centre of Transplantation at University College London, and also with Royal Free London Hospital. Reza, thanks again. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me on your programme. I have to say, I, I learned a lot about um, transplants and how weird medicine could be in that. I'd uh, love to hear your comments, particularly if you've been the recipient or been a generous donor of a transplant. You can um, email us, science at newstalk.com. Our producer, Aid McAlvey joins us to go through some of your comments from last week. Uh, have you ever given an organ to anybody? I have not. <laughs> Are you surprised? Selfish man. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. I, I just haven't been haven't been given the opportunity
1: you haven't been given the opportunity I am an, uh,
4: I am an organ donor so at some point that I care not to it. think yeah, about yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't i don't I will be giving an organ but I don't like to think about it
1: just yet let's hope it's it's in the distant future <laughs> yes apologies that's my dog
4: he was he was agreeing wholeheartedly if it's distant future thing <laughs>
1: um so uh how are you I'm
4: pretty good my mind is still blown about the Kidney transplant being just like have another kidney.
1: Well, I <laughs> mean, that's weird enough as in it is, right? But then, like, if you get a fourth and the fifth, they just find various pockets in your body to keep sticking them in. I find that so odd. Like, you could have eight kidneys, you know, and you know, like when you search for your keys, um, if you've lost them, like, you could be hitting kidneys all over the place.
4: Yeah, and and residents seem to say that, like, it could get to as many as, like, six or seven before you need to kind of actually consider taking one of them out to make space it's, ma- it's in that I just never I just never knew that I just always assumed it was a one for one situation
1: I mean it does make sense obviously because um, if you don't have to crack open someone's chest to give them something that's that's better right
4: yeah well also like if there's some I think he said there was some, if there's some sort of function which they all seem to have a little bit of function left uh, it would just be there's non- no need function. to do it
1: like yeah. if you if you had like sixteen kidneys in all the little you know the little gaps in your in your, your body. It's like stuck everywhere, anywhere you can put a kidney, stick one in there, would you be able to just get like would you be able to just drink anything and feel no hangover the next day? Is that how it works? <laughs> not, that I'm, not that I'm recommending this approach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need no, fifteen kidneys. More. I'm I've got a stag this weekend.
4: It always comes down to is there a way I can drink more? The Irish way.
1: Let, let's um, have a look then at some of our comments from last week. We, we spoke to Will Kinney about what happened before the Big Bang. And that was really cool because I didn't know there was anything before the Big Bang. Turns out there's, there's quite a bit.
4: Yeah, and uh, also it turns out that there's a quite a bit. I was just really surprised. It's pretty much accepted, the multiverse thing. I just always thought that was...
1: No, I think we're there. I think we're at the multiverse yeah. thing. Um which which is kinda cool. Um I I love that fact about the world coming from something the size of a grapefruit to everything in known existence that we can ever see or measure in one trillionth of a second. Like that is just whew. I love those I love those good solid stats. I'm hoping yeah, you know, it's remotely close.
4: Yeah, and one thing that comes from that that's really interesting is we think that Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, which is true. But it's only that nothing can travel through space at the speed of light. If it's space itself, which it is in this case, it's going faster than the speed of light.
1: Yep, that's right. Because speed of light is happening in a space that is expanding. Therefore, it must be traveling faster than the speed of light. Yeah. Um, Clonkeen College Press said, wow, another cracking episode. Will Kinney just allowed me for a few seconds... A few times to understand things that are ordinarily beyond my tiny mind. That is kind of what we try to do in the program. We try to allow you to understand things that are beyond your tiny minds. (laughs) And ours. (laughs) Aiden's like, they're going to hate you for saying that. Let me just qualify it by saying our (laughs) minds are also tiny. You can't tell me my mind is tiny. You can no, but I, I, for I know for out. a fact that you're, you're, you're a
4: chatting tiny, to people going, Tiny, tiny man. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing.
1: It is amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, Christo, Christo Antonov, awesome name, said, before ha- happened the big crunch of the universe that collapsed into the greatest black hole. Before happened the big crunch of another universe that collapsed into the greatest black hole. Sure. I mean, I don't... Uh, obviously, I think there's probably a language thing there, but... Um, I think he's I, saying
4: before the inflation... There was the big crunch and that went to a black hole and then inflated. I think it's that he's talking about that theory of, you know, it's constantly just inflating and deflating and inflating and deflating. But what I like about it is it's it's classic Twitter. He's just said that as
1: if 100% fact. I I know for a fact. (laughs) Before (laughs) it happened the big crunch. Yeah, it's like it's like I saw it. (laughs) I saw it happen. Yeah. Francis Bank, Bacon Sambo says, as Carl Sagan put it, "We're all star stuff." It's true. We get an email from Nile in Salernog and He says, "Hi, Jonathan. The author or the book, uh, the author of the book of the universe, sounded very much like Nicholas Cage, only not as good as containing the worst villains the world has ever known on one plane." <laughs> it did sound a little like it. Can we have a snippet of, um, of Will? A remarkable thing about inflation is that when you
0: postulate this earlier period, which explains, for example, why the universe gets so big because of this very fast expansion, and it also drives space, any curvature in the space to zero, so it explains why the universe is flat as well. You get something else for free, which is when you add quantum mechanics in, quantum effects actually generate tiny little fluctuations in the density of the space itself.
1: Yeah, I, do you know, I'm Matt Necklace Cage. Yeah, I interviewed him actually. And um
4: about what happened before the Big Bang?
1: No, no. I interviewed him when I used to do this movie show called We Love Movies. Myself and Gordon Hayden made came up with this movie show. And what we used to do is we used to go to Junkets and interview these very famous people, get on a red eye flight, fly over the Dorchester in London, and interview these huge stars. And you get like seven minutes with them, and you have to kind of get something out of them that isn't just well in the movie I play this guy who does X, Y, and Z you know want something that's specific to you we I mean I interviewed so many amazingly huge stars like you know Nicolas Cage and Will Ferrell and Oliver Stone and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Nicolas Cage was super intense, as you would imagine him to be. Sometimes you kind of, you know, you have a, have a persona of someone and you meet them and you think, oh, they're not quite like that. Like Chris Rock was a dick. But um, Nicolas right. Cage, a total dick. Nicholas, although you could you totally get That's that. That's interesting in light,
4: in light of yeah. recent events.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but Nicolas Cage um, was just really, and he would just answer really slowly as if at any moment he would snap and jump out and do one of those, you know, they know it's like high intensity sort of um, energy scenes. He just, I just felt like at any moment he might just jump and I'd have to just run or defend myself or something. Did um, you like him? Or I, I he... mean, it was just cool to be in the presence of such odd energy. It was good. Yeah. Anyway, there you go, Noel. Um We were talking about uh, C. difficile, uh, which is um, a worm... And that I was wondering was C. difficile called C. difficile because it's difficult to get rid of. Um, and Hugh in Cork says C. difficile almost disappeared in hospitals during COVID mainly because of quality high and hygiene. That's worth a study. Um, yeah, we got rid of a whole lot of things, didn't we? But then uh, what did we get? Monkeypox instead. So there you go. You know, it's quid made, pro that quo. That's you went
4: back to know, like, quid uh, pro like shouting at each other in fairness.
1: And um, we were talking about carbon upcycling, the idea that you could take carbon um, dioxide and turn it into things, which I thought was kind of mad. Um, and someone says, can I keep my old analog meter as it runs backwards when my solar panels produce a surplus? I don't know if I have the authority to permit that. Do I, Eden? Got it. Do I? Uh, no.
4: No. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, but it does sound like, like, you know, if he's producing a surplus from his... Um, from his solar panels. I'm all for
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look, you know, it, it, I mean, if it goes backwards, that's pretty cool. You need to get a, a little video of that. But no, I think analogue is over, my friend. We are in the digital world. Look around you. Um, Joe90 texted in. He says, hi, Jonathan. Love the show. And uh, this is in response to a thing we did on um, cold sores and COVID vaccines. And um, Hi, Jonathan. Love the show, guys. I used to get cold sores every few months, but ever since I got the Moderna vaccine, no more cold sores for over a year now. A friend got the Pfizer vaccine and he still get cold, gets cold sores. So I'm wondering, are there many other like me out there? Maybe I've discovered the cure for them. And then he has a confused face. Um, well, what we call that in uh, the scientific world, Joe, is a very small sample size and so, um, if you look at the sort of stuff that we had to put um, the current vaccines through, you're talking about like literally hundreds of thousands of people um, to, to find a pattern and, and be able to verify, yes, this does this in the body. You and your mate do not a scientific study make, I'm afraid. I think you knew that. I think you knew that. I, mean, I think it was a half, half joke, half question. But um, two people don't tell you nothing, really.
4: Yeah, there's a danger of co- danger of correlation there. I, th- I think actually our previous texture with his uh, hand washing thing probably is a more likely reason people are getting less cold sores.
1: Could be, could be. Cold sores are herpes, aren't they? I believe they are. Yeah. Are they the same herpes that you get from being friendly? I don't, I'm not
4: qualified to answer that question, <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't make any disparaging remarks. I that. hereby
1: give you permission to answer that. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, no judge here. Every, every sinner has a future and every saint has a past. That's all I'll say. Um, Karen Mallett wanted to text us in to say, just want to say, this time every Sunday is the best of News Talk. It's so interesting and a complete change from the weekday news that can't be repetitive and negative. Thank you, Jonathan, and News Talk. That was for us, yes? It wasn't Jonathan Healy or anything?
4: No, that was for us. Take that rest of News Talk, including the other shows I produce.
1: I will take it. (laughs) Um, If you're listening to this on Sunday, there's a feature about the programme and how we put it together, I think, by Darren McManus in the Indo. Have a look for it. Um, Pull back the curtain. Um, That's it from us. I'm not saying you've got any gems, unlikely given your previous form, but... um, no, I've, I've indeed, actually used, indeed, up indeed, all,
4: indeed, used up all my intelligent uh, comments in the previous 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, I've reached my limit, my quota.
1: Well, well it, it, they've been great and you've been great. Um, but let's <laughs> uh, let's leave the audience <laughs> you, on a you, high, everybody. shall we? Uh, <laughs> Aidan McKelvey, producer Simon Keane. Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo, thank you as always for putting together such a wonderful programme and allowing me to play my small part in it. I'm Jonathan McRae. This has been Future Proof. If you liked the programme, if you enjoyed this fascinating interview, let people know about it. Text and say, check this out. It's awesome. We would really appreciate you spreading the word of the Future Proof Bible. Until next time.